from Local 12 Sports. It's the Skinny Podcast. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Roaring. As always, it's presented by Blake, the attorney, Maislin. We've got some college basketball, some NFL scouting combine. We've got uh, Ask Skinny Anything. We've got all kinds of stuff on this podcast. So let's take it away, Rick. we got too much to get to. Yeah, let's jump right into the college basketball talk. And we had a couple of the local teams, actually all of them except for Cincinnati, won their last game as we're recording this on Thursday morning. We'll start with Kentucky, though, because they really had the game of the week. They beat Alabama 117-95 on Saturday, and then they won at Mississippi State on Tuesday 91-89 to on a Reed Shepard game winner. Reed Shepard had 32 points in the win, completely filled out the stat sheet, was just an awesome performance by a freshman, maybe one of the best freshman performances by a UK player that we've ever seen. Um, Skinny, I guess that's where we start this conversation. Reed Shepard is the topic of conversation on all UK message boards and sports talk this week. Do you think he would consider returning to Kentucky next year still, or is he reaching a new level in terms of his prospect status in the NBA. I mean, Rick, when you start to hear lottery pick, it's hard for him. It's hard. It would be hard for him to to leave money on the table. And the one thing I'll give Cal credit for, and I don't give him credit for a lot as, as many who've heard me know, I do think he, he, if a kid has, has the chance to go make that money, he does not hold them back from that. In fact, I think he would push that player with two hands and go, son, go make your money. Uh, And I will give him credit for that part of it. And at the point reads that, other than being a Kentucky kid who always wanted to play at Kentucky and having a legacy with his father and, and his mother playing at Kentucky, what else is there to draw him back when, when you have a chance to be a lottery pick? And I would have never thought that that would have been the conversation. I always thought he was going to be a good player. I thought he was going to be more than just a contributor. I thought he you know, was going to be a good player, but not lottery pick level. And that seems to be where the conversation's heading at the moment. We had we touched on this conversation briefly, maybe two we months did. ago or six yes. weeks ago, where it kind of came up, and it's like, ah, eh, I've seen a, a mock draft or two mention him in the lottery, sure but that doesn't that. seem real, and I just don't know. And skinny to your point, I don't think we'd even be talking about him potentially coming back now if he wasn't the son of two former UK standouts, if they weren't financially stable, if he wasn't a Kentucky kid from the mountains, and all these other little storylines that make it cute and unique that he's at UK doing what he's doing. I mean, pretty much unanimously across every mock draft. Now he is a top 10 pick, right? Some of them have him as high as top five. Wow. And if, if you're asking like, what type of money are we talking about there? We've heard NIL offers could be in between one and 2 million to get him to come back next year, which is insane. I mean, that'd be about as much as anyone in the country yeah. is making off of NIL. Very significant. And, and I believe that they could come up with that type of money to keep a guy like Reed Shepard at Kentucky. Honestly, it'd probably make more sense financially from an advertising standpoint than almost any NIL deal out there. You're probably getting real value as a company using yeah. Reed Shepard to advertise in the state of Kentucky. So I think all of that makes sense and it's legitimate. But Skinny, if he's a lottery pick, I mean, you're talking about being slotted somewhere between four and seven million, the area where he's being projected to go. That's not just a one-time payment. That's for a two-year guarantee with the option for three and four years. I mean, let's just say he flames out in the NBA after two years and he's really not a lottery pick. He's getting 12 to $14 million. That I mean, that sets you up for life, really. Yeah, and, and I think he's the type of player, whether he's a, you know, a lottery value or lottery level 
uh, value player that is always going to find his way onto an NBA bench. He just eats it because he's going to do all the right things. He's going to be a great teammate. He's going to, he's going to do what coaches want. And you know, you're the 10th, 11th guy on a bench that has value to it. So he's to that point, even if he flames out as a lottery level guy, he's going to find his way. I always thought that about Tayshaun Prince. I always thought Tayshaun Prince was always going to find his way onto an NBA bench. And guess what he did? He always found his way on an NBA bench for a long time. Yeah. And you've seen, I think with the way the game has changed a little bit to the, the, such an emphasis on three-point shooting and spacing the floor and high IQ guys. I do think you've seen a few more guys under this player archetype of the not so long and athletic, a little bit more heady IQ uh, guard type guy who's in that six three to six five mold like Reed Shepard is. He's only about maybe six three ish, six four at most. I think you've seen more of those guys succeed in the NBA and more teams start to value those types of players who can run your team from the point guard position, but also be an elite shooter on the wing and can defend a little bit. And I think that's one area where Reed Shepard has really improved his draft status is by proving that he can defend better than he showed early in the year. He's always been great at anticipating and getting steals and things like that, but he's doing a much better job of playing in the half court and keeping guys in front of him. Yeah. And I I do think that's still going to be a a detriment of his in, in the NBA, but to the point of, of does he overcome it by doing more things on the other end? I think he will. And, and listen, you're not beating team 72, 68 in the NBA anyway. So, I mean, guys give up drives left and right in that league as it is. He's not going to stand out as like some sore thumb that, that that's the only guy giving that stuff up on a given night. Yeah, if you read some of the projections, the little capsules they'll write in these mock drafts, a lot of them are even calling him like a lockdown defender and an elite wing defender. I do not see that. I think they're conflating his steal percentage numbers, his block percentage numbers, which, I mean, is an uncanny ability that he has to block jump shots. You don't see that very often, and that is very useful. And I also think in the NBA, with him having such a high IQ, He'll be able to read a lot of these actions and be in the right spot all the time, which is very helpful. But I don't know about the whole him being a lockdown elite defender type thing. But again, I mean, if if scouts are feeling that way about him and writing those things about him, clearly his draft stock is is through the roof right now. And I think it's going to be really difficult, even if you get two, two or three million dollars worth of NIL to try to bring him back. I just think it's going to be too much if he's a, a top 10 pick. And it's funny because he was the he was kind of the afterthought to that recruiting class, and and uh, Wagner, Edwards, and and uh, and Bradshaw were all considered you know borderline lottery picks, and maybe Edwards especially. And honestly, for all three, behoove all three of them to come back because I don't think any of them would be in the lottery at the moment. Yeah, I mean, just as far as this Kentucky team, though, Skinny, with the way they're playing again, I mean, it's been a, an up and down roller coaster conversation type of year with this team. But uh, uh, once again, back to back weeks now, we're talking about them starting to ramp this thing up and a few more guys showing well. And it just feels like. And playing your best players the most minutes. Well, and having all of them available. Yeah. Well, that's that's the point too. That's one thing that we've talked about a little bit this year that maybe we haven't put enough emphasis on is they have been rotating guys in and out and having different guys available for a stretch of about six weeks there. Now they've had the same compliment for two or three weeks in a row, and it does feel like there's a little more cohesiveness there. So now here's the question. What do you do with Trey Mitchell when he comes back? That's a great question because it felt like at the beginning of the year they were at their absolute best when he was a big factor and kind of manning the center spot for them when they were undersized, and then he sort of got lost in the shuffle there as guys got back to action. I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that, and I'd imagine if you're a Kentucky fan, you're a little bit worried about what the answer to that question is because it feels like you're just finally getting things stable again. Don't shake him up and screw that up. But at the same time, you're not going to to leave him out and not use him. 
Can I tell I don't know how much – did you watch much of the Alabama game, Rick? Oh, yeah. Watched almost the whole thing, yeah. Yeah. I, it was true. I, I watched it, and I, I said at one point, Alabama's getting their ass kicked, and they've probably got 15 dunks in this game. I mean, it, it, it did have a – it literally had a pickup feel to it at, at different spurts. I think the total number for that game was like 165 and a half or something. Yes. I mean, and I, and I, whenever I see those, I just go, it's going to go over, but I can't touch it. I just It's just too much for me. And yeah, but, but I mean, it was that was the 10-minute mark. Right, that, that was an obvious one, considering Kentucky is scoring 90-plus points most games this year. And you know if they're scoring like that, they're not going to stop anybody. And, and Alabama doesn't want to. They, they, they remind me of Loyola Marymount. They, they, they want to get it out of the basket and go, and they just hope they outscore. And they're good at it. Like, look, they're, they're a terrific offensive team, no question about it. But they literally live clearly on that end of the floor. I really think they would be happy if they could make it a 120-118 to 118 game pretty much too. every night. Yeah, they, they like playing that style. Any other thoughts here on Kentucky before we move on? No, I, I will say I thought I think just winning that game at Mississippi State was a big um, hurdle to get over. Uh, you know, the, again, the LSU loss was a fluky end, but it's still a loss, and that's what it goes down in the scorecard as. And this year has kind of been two steps forward, step back, two steps forward, step back. And I, I do think a loss at Mississippi State would have still had you going. They just can't get over the hump away from yeah. – well, not how they lost some games at Rupp too, but they just can't string anything consistently together. They have a chance to make it more because Arkansas and Vandy are next, and then they end with Tennessee. Um, so you're almost automatically winning these next two games just on sheer talent alone, and then can you really keep the ball rolling by going to Tennessee, setting yourself up for maybe an SEC tournament run, and maybe even at that point playing all the way up to maybe a four-seed line or maybe even a three-seed line depending on what things happen. That's probably jumping the gun a little bit. But that's where the Mississippi State win was a big hurdle. It actually goes down as a quad one win, too. Um, so that helps to build the resume up as well. So that, that, to me, for them, was a big win to get. And a game where you weren't playing well, where you no, had right, to fight through right. the adversity, where you had right. to get back on track, and you figured out a way to do that. And you did it with defense to some extent, too. You really held them for about five or six minutes. Yep. That enabled you to get back in the game and make a run. So there were a lot of things to like about this performance at Mississippi State. Let's move on to the North, Skinny. You know I'm excited to talk about this this week. They beat IUPUI 80-64 to on Sunday and then rolled over Robert Morris 70-60 to on Wednesday. That score is not indicative. It's, not, of- listen, I, it's funny. I, I actually uh, I had a game last night to coach myself and I had to turn in a rental car from my trip to Indy. And so uh, I was waiting to be picked up and actually was waiting in the rental car for about 30 minutes before I knew the ride was going to get there. So I got a chance to listen to you and Jim Kelch for the whole second half of that game. And to your point, I was going to say that exact thing. That game was nowhere near as close as what the final ended up being. Yeah, it got up to, you know, 23 or 24, yeah. I think, at one point. And NKU started, both teams subbed at the end. Uh, Robert Morris's subs performed better than NKU's walk-ons did there at the end. And so they kind of made a bit of a comeback and made the score more respectable. But one other point about these two wins, obviously IUPUI, not a good team at all. Right. Robert Morris has been playing well. They've had a lot of close games, especially recently, but they haven't piled up a lot of wins this year either in conference play. But NKU was down another starter. They've obviously been playing without Sam Vincent. They were also without their starting center, Keena Tijere, the transfer from Marquette, who has been a major factor here over the last month of the season, really on defense, but even as a lob threat on the offensive end at times in pick and rolls. So um, for them to continue playing this way without another one of their starters, without much depth, I mean, they just continue to find ways to to get through this this end of the the season slate and and get themselves into a position. They have now locked up a buy in the first round of the Horizon League tournament, and they're either going to be the three, four, or five seed, which was basically what you're what you're shooting for all along. Yeah. So so the, the difference between so to get the home game, you would have to be the one of the top four seeds, right? Correct. The fifth seed gets the first round to buy, but they play on the road against the right. four seed. So. Yeah. 
So really, in a lot of ways, NKU and Wright State are just playing for the home game in the quarterfinals, and they're very likely to play each other again. And that's a that's a big deal. I mean, I, I I wouldn't have to go. I wouldn't want to go to Wright State and lose this final game, and then have to go to Wright State again and try to beat them on their home floor. I, I, that's a big ass, man. I agree with also, that. But it's, it's also a big ass to beat them back to back times. Fair, fair in a point. week. Yeah, fair and, point. And maybe for them too. And uh, also, I think if you're looking at NKU, Keena Tijere didn't dress for this game on Wednesday night. Um, there, I think there would be a good chance that he's not going to play in this one. So I think if you look at that one, you think you'll have Kiana Tijere back for next week in the postseason, hopefully. Then you kind of look at this one a little bit differently as like, okay, you want to beat Wright State, obviously. You never want to lose at Wright State. You want the four seed. But if at the end of the day, the deal is you're going to be playing Wright State either way, and it's just a matter of home or away, you want the home game, but it's not the end of the world if you don't get it, I don't think. Yeah, you're probably right. I just, again... We we saw it though last year. I mean, how many upsets were there? Were some some of the some of the higher higher numbered seeds going on the road and beating the, the lower seeds? Well, NKU had this same scenario last year where they have to beat Oakland in back to back games at the end of the year. Um, you know, they played them in the final game of the regular season and played them in the Horizon League tournament as well. So um, that's kind of been a common occurrence in this conference where you kind of have it coming down to the end of the the regular season, you're figuring out the seeding and then you end up having to play that same team in the, in the conference tournament right away. So I'll ask you, cause I do think Keenan TJ is a big part just because of his, his length and athleticism, but has the offense changed at all for the better without him? You know, that's a good point. And I do think there's something to be said for that because when you have Trey Robinson and LJ Wells, both on the floor as your two big men, they're both skilled. They face up, they handle the ball, they drive the ball, they shoot the three a little bit. That changes the way the defense has to guard you and how much they have to spread out to account for those guys. I think you do get a little more space in the lane there and around the rim. And also, you just have another guy who's a threat with the ball in their hands. Right. I mean, Kean is a lob threat at all times, but most of the time when he's in the half court, he's not really a threat to hurt you on the offensive end because he's not going to dribble. He's not going to set other guys up or make plays. So uh, I do think there's something to be said for their offense and the way it's functioning with a little bit of a smaller lineup out there because LJ Wells and Trey Robinson still rebound really well, yeah, even yeah. for forwards. Yeah, no question. Yeah. Um, Skinny, any other thoughts here on the Norse as they get ready? I mean, they've got basically they play this Saturday against Wright State. The only way they're not the four of the five seed playing Wright State again is if they win and Green Bay loses at Milwaukee. If that were to happen, then NKU would be the three seed and they'd likely be playing the six seed. In I the mean, that's, it's, it's not inconceivable, right? No, not inconceivable, especially with the way Green Bay's been struggling. Yeah. They, yeah. They've faltered down the stretch here a bit. So so it is possible, but that's pretty much the scenario. It feels pretty likely. There's like a probably a 75% chance that it's going to be NKU at Wright State or Wright State at NKU in the quarterfinals. So it's going to be a showdown here in the conference tournament. All right, let's move on to Cincinnati. The Bearcats lost at TCU 75-57 on Saturday and then lost at Houston 67-59 to on Tuesday. We're going to talk about Xavier, too, and both of Cincinnati and Xavier, I feel like it's a coach comment week with these two fan bases. Everybody's talking about what the coaches are saying before their games, after their games. And so we'll start with Cincinnati following the Houston loss 67-59. And I don't my have coming. Odd- my, team, my team's coming. Yeah, I don't have the audio of this because uh, it was on the radio show, I believe. I went back to watch his postgame presser. It wasn't on there, so it must have been on the radio. But everyone was tweeting about this. I think Wes was even trending at one point after the game. He said, quote, that's Cincinnati basketball. I can lose with that. I'm not happy. I'm pissed. But we're coming. If you don't believe that, I don't want to be around you. 
Skinny, there were uh, a lot of comments on these comments made by Wes Miller. What were your thoughts when you heard them? Uh, I, I do think the effort of them in the second half is probably what he, he liked, and then they did. But coming how? You just got your doors blown off at TCU. You, listen, I know Houston's the number one ranked team in the country, and you did stay – I mean, after the first part of the game, you actually outscored them for the majority of the game. But that's that's not how you define coming. I, coming to me is – you lose a nail biter after you know you won three in a row, and and you still want to show that you feel confident. Coming how? Coming what way? It's the same. This team has been the same team from the outset. It just isn't talented enough. You've played yourself out of at large contention. No one thinks you're a threat to win the Big Twelve tournament. You're kind of playing out the string at the end of a year, which happens. It is what it is. It's first year in the Big Twelve. I don't think anyone's like devastated by that. No one's happy about it, but no one's devastated. But to say something like this, it just makes no sense. Like, what are you even talking about? Are you referring right. to next year when you're going to have to completely rebuild your roster through the transfer portal and infuse? It's not like these same guys are going to be the ones that lead you to something promising next year. So what are you really saying? And really what this boils down to is college coaches are like influential teenagers in high school. They see something in a said in a movie or a rap video. And it's like, then you, you want to go do that thing, right? It's cool now. So you want to go do it. They see Dan Hurley last year, get in one of his press conferences, middle of the year when he's struggling and say, you better get us now. Cause we're coming and go win a national championship. And now every coach in America feels like they have to say that this year about their team. It doesn't make sense in your case, Wes. You're not coming. You're no. playing out the string on a bad year, and you need to rebuild your roster. Yeah, I mean, this is going to look really foolish if you lose it home to Kansas State and or West Virginia. I mean, it, 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 I, coming, coming how? Again, if you would come off a win at TCU and, and played – Played kind of the way you did. I, I mean, honestly, I thought they played fine against Houston. They played so hard. They battled a physical team, you know, tooth and nail. And you could argue maybe Houston looked down on UC. And it was one of those nights for them, too. I, I, I don't care. I thought they played played just fine. They played as hard as they could play. Uh, they were they battled. I, I would believe that coming off of a win at TCU, at TCU and then losing the way you did, then I'd say, hey, my team's coming. I mean, look what, the, what we, we got down early, but we kept – I'll believe you then. I'm not believing you now. You lost three in a row and you said this yes. in a game where you failed to score 60 points. I mean, this wasn't, again, if you had won three games in a row and then you lost this one to Houston when they played well and it's 71 to 68, then your comments still don't make sense because you're not coming this year. It was, a, it was a good performance, but it's, it's understandable to come out there with a little piss and vinegar and be like, yeah, really proud of my guys. I can lose with that type of effort. But I mean, you didn't even score 60 points. And you're on a losing skid right now. It, things are about as bad as they've been during your tenure. These yeah. comments just don't add up. I mean, it's just – and again, it's just not a very skilled roster. I mean, and you don't get the – I mean, all of a sudden, Victor Lockin comes in and actually does something. Are you going to get that from him on Saturday against Kansas State? Or are you He's coming. Get He's I coming. Guess. Maybe Vic is coming. Maybe Vic's coming. Maybe that's Vic what it is. Vic is coming. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. It's like it's like coaches don't understand that they don't have to come up with some cute saying every time they get in front of a microphone. It can just be – Hey, lost this one, thought our effort was good enough tonight in some ways, but we didn't score near enough points and we're still battling our lack of offensive firepower or something. Like that. Just say what actually happened and be a normal human being. It doesn't have to be some catchy soundbite when it makes no sense. What, what did what did most of the comments that you saw the majority say? Did they think it was ridiculous? Yeah, I think I saw a lot of people ripping him. And then I saw, you know, your your typical people who are kind of always defending the program or the coach 
trying to defend it and they sound just as silly as he did trying to defend. I mean, it's just like, it's an indefensible thing. It's fine. You can like Wes Miller. You can say he's going to be a great coach, but this is a silly statement to make. He just didn't sound intelligent when he said it. And we're going to get in another statement like that with Xavier. Cause it, I mean, it was very different, but Sean Miller's been uh, complaining a whole lot about his team recently too. So uh, Xavier lost at Marquette 88, 64 on Sunday and then beat DePaul on Wednesday, 91, 58. They're bad. Now, it's a bounce back Ooh. game, but DePaul is so bad right well, now. It's like playing a low major team. Yeah. I mean, they're so bad. They can't even make a wide open layup to win at home over Georgetown. Well, that's like just scratching the surface of their problems. That was actually one of their best performances of the year. I know I'm, it. But boy, the chance to get your one conference win and you blow a wide open layup. Yeah, it's it's bad. But I mean, honestly, as bad as they've been this year, that game's one that I, I imagine. Well, uh, the record books. After the game, they're probably thinking we're coming. We're coming. Yeah, we're coming. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's get into Sean Miller's comments that he had. This was before the game against DePaul. It was after the performance on Marquette where they got their doors blown off. Over this was on weekend. his show, right? This was on his radio show yeah. Monday night. I did not hear it. How so I'm listening deal to with, in this. All right. Uh, but how how you deal with the guys? Uh, lack of effort is something that's hard. I really try to stay away from saying that. Because there's a lot of times over the years where when you're on the plane going back, you're like, they didn't try. I can't wait to get these guys in practice. You watch the film. You let a day go by and you figure out they actually did try. It wasn't as bad as I thought. You know, we just had one of those nights where the other team was much better or offensively we we struggled. The, the, The disposition of our group in Milwaukee playing Marquette is just fundamentally unacceptable. They, they, they were not ready to play. They did not play with great effort. And there's a couple guys that, quite frankly, don't deserve to play anymore. It's just it's, it's, it's where it's at. So we have to be able to see it for what it is. I think that you know, where we're at in 2024, it's like it is, it, is, it is holding people accountable in a world that really doesn't allow you to do it sometimes. And you have to give Xavier maximum effort. You have to show up on time. You have to play for something that's bigger than yourself. Those are just the beginning stages. And, and by the way, no one's saying you have to score 20 and 10, or especially this season with the schedule that we've had, that you have to win 25 games. That's not what I'm saying. But what is expected is that you're going to play your heart out. You're going to play with tremendous effort level from the start of the game to the finish. Or else I'm telling you right now, you will never play here. You, you, you won't even know who these guys are. So these next 12 days, I think we have five games left. It reminds me a lot of a couple moments I had when I was here the first time. It's like a couple guys are going to be here, a couple guys may not, because what we're trying to do at Xavier is not for everybody. To win in this conference in the Big East, you need guys who love the game, who are willing to give everything they have for the school, for the program, that they're playing for something that's bigger than just going out there and scoring 20 points or whatever, wherever it is. But uh, we're, we're after that, and I think that we're going we're gonna to be really – hard at holding our standard right there. And if that means Brad Cole. Yeah. So that was, those yeah, were the I, was just, I, know, I heard that he threatened to start a walk on and that was the walk on Brad Cole. He did make a three last night. I heard the ovation. It was the crowd loved it. Yeah. But like, see, that's, that's one of those comments that I think is so silly by coaches. Okay. Yeah. yeah the the walk on's great, right? He, he's the one that you can always count on playing so hard. He does everything right. Well, why don't you stick him in there for uh, two or three games in a row? Let him play the minutes. The other guys are playing that you're ragging on and watch him. Uh, give up ball screen coverages 10 times over those games and then see if you really think he's still the winner that you think he is, right? The, the actual problem is your talent's just not good enough this year. Yeah, yeah. And that was the roster you put together. Well, 
Well, and, and, and I'm, I'm, are there, he didn't name names, but are there players that you think he's pointing towards? Because I, I look at the game last night and the, and the usual cast of characters, for the most part, played their normal minutes. Yeah, I mean, it was good to see Kachienze get in there and play more as a freshman, a guy who hasn't really played much. He, If I'm a Xavier fan, I'm wanting to see him. I'm wanting to see Trey Green. I'm going to see Dalen Swain. I'm trying to figure out what are we trying to build off of from this year's roster to go forward because I don't think that answer is clear right now. Going into this spring and summer, I'm not sure exactly what they should be doing in the transfer portal, who all should be staying and who all should be leaving. So I think that's that's a big part of it. But in terms of like who he was referencing specifically with those comments, he mentioned something about guys not moving on the opening tip at Marquette. There are a lot of people going over that opening tip off like the Zapruder film. And uh, they were like, uh, you know, does Claude didn't flinch and Quincy Oliveri didn't move. So those are the two guys. Well, hate to tell you, those were the two best players in the game last night for Xavier. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that, yeah I mean, so, so again, I, I, I do get the frustration. You can hear it in his voice and you can, you've seen it on the sidelines this year. You talked about the vibe last. I, I get all that. But if you were going to say that, and there are guys you want to hold accountable. Well, then hold them accountable. Yeah, it was right? interesting. It was interesting because Lazar Djokovic seemed to be someone who was in the doghouse and was being held accountable the last two games where he didn't get off the bench following him being yanked out at Seton Hall after a minute of play. There was a little back and forth between him and Sean. So we were all thinking, you know, it's kind of like a silent suspension here. Like he's just not going to play him going forward. Then he gets into this game against DePaul and plays one of his better games. So it's kind of hard to figure out in terms of the whole holding guys accountable and what all that means this time of year, what it means for a team that's playing out the string, similar to what you see is doing. Um, I do just think there's a lot of coaches feeling like every time they get in front of a microphone, they have to make some grand statement. And it's like, it's okay. It's okay to just like answer the questions and move on with your day. Not everything has to be a soundbite. Um, in Sean's case, I do think we had him kind of complaining about a lot of things the last few weeks. This sounded more like the old school Sean Miller of like, I'm pissed at my team. This is unacceptable and they're going to have to deal with me in practice. So at least I think for Xavier fans perspective, it felt like it was back to Sean being Sean. Yeah. And again, maybe it was the right time to do that because you knew you were going to kick the Paul's ass. It was going to look good for everybody. Yeah. And that's the sort of the frustrating part about this. It's like, oh yeah, the message was really well received, right? It's like, well, I mean, I guess, or you just played a team that wasn't guarding Quincy Oliveri for the second straight time, and he scored 75 points on him in a matter of two games. So, you know, Boy, they're bad. Boy, they're bad. It's Ooh. insane. Well, just watching their defense in, in the second half of that game where Quincy Oliveri scores 28, and mind you, he scored 42 the first time they played, yeah, or 43. Right. No, 45, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, he, I don't think so. Yeah, but he scored in the 40s against yeah. the first time they played. He comes off at this time, and uh, it's like they they're, they have no plan for how they're going to guard him. He has more room running off screens and curling around these actions than he did in the first game that they played. It's like I, I have no idea what that coaching staff is doing. Here's, here's what we'll do. We'll let him keep shooting, and he'll get tired, and then he'll miss. Yeah, just give him a little more space coming around right. that screen. Maybe that'll throw him off. Yeah, he'll wonder, why are we – I'm a good shooter. Why aren't you guarding me? Yeah, I mean – we always talk about relegation with different sports oh. and DePaul really does need to be relegated oh. out of the Big East. They just do not belong here, at least not right now until they need like a five year period where they've proven they're back at a high major status before you can let them back in the conference. I mean, it has been a long time. Yeah. And it's not just long time that they haven't won long time where they've been so inept and dragging down the conference so significantly that they don't even resemble anything close to a high major team. Yeah. It's brutal. Yeah. All right, one last topic here to get to on the college basketball side of things, Skinny. It, it's become a, a big national story. It's happened several times over the course of this year, but it, it 
sort of hit a boiling point last weekend in the Duke game when there was the court storming in their loss against Florida State. And Kyle Filipowski was brushed against by a student. He kind of forearm chucked a student. The student bumped into him and his knee, and then he went limping off like he had been shot. Magically, he he met, was able to make it out okay and is good to go, and he, he played in the next game against Louisville. Um, but it did bring up the whole, should we be court storming? Should court storming be banned? What should you do about this to prevent future problems? Where do you come out on that side of the conversation? Well, well A, the, the whole thing of court storming has become so cliched. I mean, what, what, what the heck? You beat Duke. It's not. It's a good Duke team, but it wasn't like they were undefeated. Um, back-to-back national champions. I, listen, I always think the thing's silly. I get to let kids be kids. That, that's I, I've, I've never understood just running on the court just so I can jump around. I mean, team one, yay, my team. I can walk out the, the, the door pretty easily. I could do. I did that as a student. Now maybe I come from a school where court storming. I don't even think it was not, not frowned upon. It just wasn't the thing because Kentucky's expected to win and. When they do, you get up and you walk back to your dorm or your apartment or whatever and celebrate that way. So the, the, the it's become cliched, number one. So I think it's lost the magic of what it kind of used to be of something real significant. But it is – I've always thought it was a dangerous thing. I, I – I, uh, you know, Caitlin Clark getting bumped and, and now Filipowski, and maybe they were a little overdramatic. But at the same time, it does show that something bad's going to happen. I, here's the other part, Rick, that I'm afraid of at some point, too, because we're allowing these students to rush onto the floor with really no consequence to them. What happens when a student's all liquored up, has a bet on a game or a bet on a player who who missed a bunny at the end that cost me my five leg parlay? What's going to happen then? Something's going to happen at some point with this. So to me, I, I, again, I'm going to be old man yelling at clouds. You and I disagree on some of this stuff generationally. Um, and maybe you're not going to disagree with me, but we do a lot of times disagree on stuff generationally. It's one of two things. You you put a, a timer on the clock that says three minutes. You can storm the court in three minutes. Let's get everybody off the floor. Three minutes come down. Then you can all join in and, and, and have a good time, jump around on the floor. Or if you want to take it to the nth degree and really punish this, because this whole fine thing doesn't do anything. Kids don't care about the school getting fined. You think they give a rat's behind about getting yeah. fined? If you want to really end this, in my opinion, if you want to put your foot down, you say if you storm the court, that win is now forfeited. Have a good day. Yeah, that that's a tough one to to get approved. I think I don't know how many people are going to agree to that. I'm if you want to go that route, I'm okay with it because at the end of the day, I just want court storming to stop. I didn't think it ever get to this point. I was someone who always used to say, "I don't care, just let them do whatever they want." Like I don't think we need fun police in this world. But it's gotten to the point. To, what's changed my mind on this is the point you brought up to start with, which is that it's become so cliche and so stupid at this point. It used to be, this is a once in a a decade win for our program. It's so shocking because we beat the number one team in the country that we never, ever beat, or we pulled off a, some or a mid major pulled off a ranked win. And it's so crazy, but we don't, I mean, high major teams getting an average conference win over someone that they play at twice every year. And okay, this time they're ranked and you weren't ranked. So it's a, it's a good win for you this year. Like that is not something you court storm for. That's yeah, embarrassing. Who, who, it's stupid. It's silly. Who did the UC students storm, storm the court against? After they beat, Kansas State? Was no, it they, haven't played, they haven't played them at home yet. Um, but it was somebody. Crap almighty. Who was Was it? I'm drawing a total blank. It was somebody in the league though. That was, uh, Texas Tech. Okay. Yeah. Texas. I mean, is that that's really a, a that's that's a that's is that a program defining win? 
No, I mean, at least in UC's case, now, again, I don't think this is a storm of the court, but at least in UC's case, like, this is all new to them. They haven't played a ton of, like, they don't play ranked teams every year. You have banners hanging in your arena that say national champion. I agree with you on all of this. If I'm trying to play the devil's advocate and give them a little more leeway, at least on the UC side of things, some of this is new, and it was a bigger win for them, their program that they've, than they've been used to lately. But, I mean, the ACC stuff and Big Ten teams – Teams storming the court in games like that where they're just playing a normal conference game. And it's like, okay, it's a decent win for you, but your program is bigger than their program or better than their program, has more prestige, and you're storming the court over that? Like, it's just stupid. It's lost all significance. It's gotten to a point where it really is just a thing where people are, they want their Instagram video or their TikTok video. So they're running down the court and getting that. It's just become a big selfie game. It's like, well, can we, like you said, can we not just say, hey, uh, Friday night is selfie night at the arena. You're all allowed to come down after the game ends and do your TikTok dances. Da, da, da. Like that's what the kids really want at this point. They have no idea what's going on with the sport clearly because they're storming after beating nobodies. So quit, like just eliminate that somehow. We got to get rid of it. Dude, one of my favorite things ever, and I feel bad. I'm going to say this, tell this story. I was covering UK um, and it was the year that LSU won on that Hail Mary pass. I don't remember the play in the mid 2000s. Um, Jared Lorenzen was the late Jared Lorenzen was Kentucky's quarterback and they had gone down and scored late to take the lead. It looked like they were going to win the game. And and so the, the, the play is ongoing as the students are rushing the field. And I, 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 and the way at UK, when you were covering them, was you'd go down to the field a couple minutes before the game ended because the, the where the press entry was, you had to walk across the field to get it. So you'd go down, stay on the field, watch the last minute or two, and then go to the thing. Um, but I couldn't see – I saw the pass go up in the air. All of a sudden, everybody starts rushing the field, and I'm watching it on the Jumbotron, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, they just won the game. Kid goes running by going, wow, what a win. I said, you just lost, you idiot. Take a look. And it was funny to see how many people at one time just kind of stopped in mid-track and went, oh, crap, we just lost. I mean – idiots well and that's the great thing about the uk mississippi state game the other night now this has become such a big thing where you're worried about the court storming and you're like oh we got to get our security in place we got to put an announcement they announced with like four and a half minutes hey do not storm the court and then they lose the freaking game you know how if i'm the coach on that bench and i hear rpa guy say don't storm the court with four minutes to go again i'm losing my mind like I'm not a huge jinx guy, but that's way too much for me. You can't say don't storm the court right. with four and a half minutes to go in the game. Exactly. Yeah, I, I don't know, Skinny. I don't think there's a great answer for how you stop it other than just more security and a really stiff penalty like you're suggesting where you forfeit the game, you forfeit a home game next year, something like that. I, I don't know how you do it to but where the, it makes the, sense. The, but the fine, the fine isn't working because, like I said, the no. kids don't care. and they, they shouldn't care about the fine, I guess. I, mean, they, I think the only thing fine-wise where it, it could make sense is if you make it so astronomical to where they just put a security presence in place that no, isn't going to allow the kids out. Right. That would be the other the other aspect of it. Then it becomes costly to you to add more security. Right, which it sucks that we have to even do this and we have to even worry about it. But unfortunately, I think that's where we're at because it, it does have to be eliminated. And I, I think the, the last point you made about – Someone running out all liquored up and screaming something racist in a face and then getting punched by a player or vice versa. They get into a physical altercation with the player themselves and initiate that. It's going to be catastrophic for the sport. And it's so avoidable. It's the same thing as like um, shaking hands at the end of games. We've had flare ups occasionally there and people say, well, should we just do away with that? And everyone's like, come on, we we shouldn't have to do away with good sportsmanship just because there are some bad people out there that are reacting poorly. It's like, well – you know what? In this case, I think it might just be best for everyone. Why even create that opportunity for it to happen? Yeah, everybody should be a good sport, and everybody should just sit in their seat and watch the game and then go home afterwards. 
but they don't, so we have to put guardrails in place. Dude, it was Incarnate Word, of all places, that got into a, to a handshake line fight. Incarnate Word. Shout out to the Cardinal. I, is that what they are? I have no idea. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say yes. That's great. All right, let's uh, let's wrap this thing, or let's move on here to the Bengals, Skinny. That that ends our college basketball segment. Uh, interesting Bengals story this week that got people going online. The NFL Players Association released their team report cards on Wednesday. The idea of it is it's a survey for the players to give each other an idea of what the working conditions are like across the league, and then it can be used as a tool for free agency. So you kind of have an idea of like, okay, this is how the food is, this is how the weight room is, this is how the coaching staff is in your workplace. Uh, the big news in Cincinnati was the Bengals getting an F minus for multiple categories, including treatment of families, food cafeteria, nutrition, dietitian, and then they also got a D plus in locker rooms. Now, the Bengals did already announce last week that they're renovating their locker room, yeah. so that should no longer be a problem. But Skinny, what was your take when you saw this report card? Is it a, a big deal? Are people making a big deal over nothing? And how concerning is this for free agency? No, I, I think it is a good thing because last year, I think they got a D plus maybe for weight room and they went and renovated it. And I don't know if they renovated without that report card. I think they, they realized the importance of it. Now, this is back-to-back years. They've gotten F minuses in the three categories you mentioned. So they obviously haven't haven't improved those areas. I, I got to be honest with you, though. The one – Maybe they're maybe just so we get a we, we don't get a chance to eat there um, other than on draft weekend. They feed us, which is very nice. And I'll be honest with you. I think their, their food is really good. Um, you know, it's usually a couple of meats. It's vegetables that are freshly cooked. There's a nice salad bar. Um, there's all kinds of you get cereal. There's, they have all kinds of stuff. I, I do think the dietitian is one that they probably need to look into because players, I do think. Would like to have a tailored meal plan for them. I do think their complaint is valid that they don't offer three meals a day to the players, even on days they come in on their off days to do extra things, uh, do extra film prep, uh, do you know extra maybe rehab stuff. I, I don't think that's too much to ask. I, the, the food quality to me, I, I that seems very prima donnish, but it is funny. I do see when on the days that we're in there, when the cafeteria is open, there are a lot of players who do order out. It, it's crazy to see how many guys come in with their own like bags in the in the uh, in the security office. Um, and, and come out of the security office with, with, with their food. So uh, they, they obviously don't like it. I think they're being a little prima donnish from the food taste perspective, because honestly, I think it's 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 good enough. But the treatment of the families is a big deal, I think. Um, you know, where the fa- where the wives have to park, where, you know, there's no daycare on game days uh, for, for those those people. And I think I think they can provide that. And listen, they heard the noise about the locker room. They are renovating that. I think back-to-back years hearing the noise in the three F-minus categories, if that's an F-minus again, then that does raise a red flag to me. Skinny, I, I will. I do have to point out you're mentioning that they're being prima donnas on the, the taste of the food. This is a podcast where you and I talk a lot about eating at gas stations. True. So I don't know that if we're the best to judge millionaires and how they eat and feel their bodies when they're elite athletes. Uh, but maybe we'll we'll take a pass on commenting on the nutrition and the taste of it. But I do – like. Here's my issue with all of it. Some of it, I think you can very easily look at it and say, well, players are nitpicking a little bit, or this is a little prima donna. How much do you really need? At the same time, how much does it cost the Bengals to fix something like treatment of families? Really, right. I, I read the report. Really what they're asking for is a room for the families to get out of the cold during cold games and somewhere for them to hang out after the game when they're waiting for the players to get done. And two, a coordinator, so there's someone to go to with questions and concerns when you're when those things are taking place. So really, we're talking about them 
probably not even building any new infrastructure, really just sprucing a room up somewhere in Paul Brown Stadium because there are plenty of areas that aren't being yes, used right. there or yeah. can be multi-purpose rooms. And probably hiring a, a low salary person that makes forty or 50000 a year to be a coordinator for the families. I mean, yes. that seems but like an easy, easy fix. You just hired three extra coaches. I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, we, we've got a coordinator for socks and on for the defensive backs only, but dude, yet we I, can't have the uh, family coordinator. I've never, on. A, I've never seen a staff with more coaches in my life. And yeah, to your point, you can't add a role like that. I mean, it just seems like such an easy fix for the Agreed. treatment of families role. Agreed. Um, then, yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about having a full-time dietitian, which, okay, maybe you want to say, well, like, do they really need that? Do they really need – I think, I think that's important. Yeah, I do think that's important. Well, if every other team is doing it or if most other teams are doing it, why would you not doing it? What more? What could it possibly cost you to have a dietitian on staff? It's got to be six figures at absolute most, $100,000 salary for a full-time dietitian, right? And yeah, then no, – we're talking about another meal a day for these guys. Like uh, it's expensive, I'm sure. But when we're talking about the difference between getting free agents that put you over the edge for a Super Bowl or not, this is not something that I want to have it come down to is you didn't give them three meals per day. Or, or, or these players who are to their credit are going the extra mile by coming in on a day off to do something. And, and it is, it's, it, they don't give many, they, they get Tuesday off. That's, that's the day off. Um, or coming in to do extra work after hours or, or staying after hours. If they're willing to put that in, at least you can do is feed them. Yeah, and this isn't 1995 where the guys are drinking a 12-pack in the locker room after the game. These guys right. are pretty into taking care of their bodies yeah. and the nutrition no aspect question. of it. Like 24-7, yes. it's a pretty big deal to them. So why not go all in on that side of things? One, for their benefit, but two, just to make them feel good about the situation. It seems like an easy fix, again, to get out of an F-minus category. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, yeah, I, I, it is an easy fix to me. Uh, it was interesting, though. Zach Taylor got an A grade, um, which I think the, the one thing that was interesting, I know people are going to roll their eyes at it, was was how he doesn't waste the, the players say they don't, that he doesn't waste their time. Yep. And I think there's something to be said for that. I think that and the way he communicates with them. Yeah. They feel it said something about he really takes their input to heart. And yep. um, I think that would definitely define him as a uh, player's coach. But if you look across the board, the best teams in these report cards, all the coaches got a, a high grade. So, I mean, there's there's very few coaches that got bad grades, and they were the worst of the worst teams. So that definitely tells you a little something. The other note I would make is I did start looking across, like, okay, treatment of families. Where are some of these other teams ranked? Like, where are the good teams ranked, right? And, I mean, there are some, like, the Pittsburgh Steelers are a D-minus there. You know, the, the Rams... They have a room, which is weird. I mean, I know that's not the only thing, but it, it is interesting because we have to walk through that area to get to the locker room in Pittsburgh. Yeah, you know, like the Rams are a D-plus in that. Um, and some of these other categories where the Bengals were bad, like nutrition, Kansas City Chiefs are a D-plus in that. Wow. You know, the Philadelphia Eagles well, are are low in some of these categories, too. I know I was looking at them. So it's it's the not Chiefs the end of the ownership, I think, weren't they? Yes, yes, I think they were. Their ownership was really bad. And I've never, I mean, I, I don't know what goes into that sometimes, but I, I've never heard that. Like, it's not been a thing, right? Do the Chiefs have bad ownership? Have you? I, I mean, I'm not in Kansas City, obviously. We're not in Kansas City, but I think that would be a national story that, hey, this team, like, like when the Oakland A's won their World Series in the '70s, they all hated the owner Charlie Finley, but they still won, and it was almost like them against the owner. I don't, I don't hear that in that case. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm looking I'm trying to look up pull up the Eagles right now. I, I got I got them because they were they were down on a couple of them too. They finished 14th out of 32 teams and yeah, the Eagles, um, by the way, were, th- were 26th overall out of 32. They actually went up a spot. And, and they got they got like a D in team travel 
a C minus in training room, a C plus in locker room. So it's not like all of the best franchises are dominating all of these categories. There is something to fix at a lot of different places. But my point there would still be if you're the Bengals and you haven't been in the position that the Chiefs are in where you've won a Super Bowl, why not fix this low hanging fruit that can maybe put you over the edge in free agency? Agreed. Agreed. Any other thoughts there on the uh, Bengals report card, Skinny? No, I, I, it's funny because it, it came out the exact time last year when, when I was at the Combine on the Wednesday. I guess I didn't remember it. All of a sudden, we, we, we got out of doing an interview with the, with Dan Pitcher, the offensive coordinator, and sat down. And I, all of a sudden, I started – we transcribed some stuff together. I started to put it together for us. And Jay Morrison was next to me. He goes, he goes report card just came out. I go, what report card? He goes, the NFLP. I went, oh, gosh, yeah. And when I started looking at it, I go, here they are. The F-minuses are back, boys. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is interesting. And I, I, I think it is something to take to heart because um, – Actually, more players took part in it this year. I think 1,300 took part last year. 1,706 took part in it this year. So, And again, I do think the Bengals heard the complaints from last year. Like I said, they did renovate an area that they asked to be renovated. They're renovating the locker room, which they're being asked to do. Now, some of the, to your point, some of these other things should be pretty easy to fix, in my opinion. Well, I think that's why more players participated this year in the survey because it actually got taken to heart last year yeah. by some of the teams. It put pressure on some of the teams to get some of these things fixed. Now, Skinny, I know you probably read through the whole thing like I did. What did you think was the most damning remark about the whole Bengal situation? There's one that really stood out to me. Was Yeah, I, I, off the top of my head, I don't have one, but I did read through it. Um, give me yours because it'll probably be the same one. It mentioned they only had five working toilets for the yes. players because the plumbing was so bad. Can you imagine? I mean, think about that. But here's the thing that's interesting because it also talked about the, the the water pressure and the showers and the hot water. Um, you know, we're in there at a time when, where some players are going in and out of the shower. I honestly have never heard them out loud complain about it. I'm sure it's a thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure it's a thing. But listen, you know, if, if I walk out of a shower and it got cold, I, you, you'd go, damn water's cold again, boys. Don't go in there. I I, I just I, I don't hear that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean. I get what you're saying. I mean, you are kind of in that transition room where they'll come out of the, the showers and then right into their locker. And so, I mean, you would see them a little bit, but I also would tell you, like, I don't think uh, they're bringing the complaints about the, the plumbing to no, Paul Boehner no. and Richard Skinner. No, so I, but I, I would think you'd hear some of you'd that. You'd hear something. Yeah. yeah. I'm just, I just can't get over, like, you, you, there's five toilets to use. You're waiting on one of them. And it's like Jackson Carmen just got done spending 15 minutes in there and you're next. It's like, yep. thanks. Yeah. Good luck to you. Yeah. Um, all right. You media members also got the chance to talk to Zach Taylor and Duke Tobin at the NFL scouting combine on Tuesday. Uh, there are a handful of things that got mentioned there that I thought were somewhat interesting. Let's start with Joe Burrow's wrist surgery recovery. Should we be concerned here? Because they talked about this a little bit. I thought their comments were fine. They, they seem to think everything's going right. But then we also had these videos of uh, Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase sitting courtside in an NBA game. And Joe is shaking with the, the left hand instead of the right hand that he had surgery on. Like, is there any concern there? Is there reason to be concerned, Skinny? Sure. Absolutely there is. Until you see him throw and see him do something physical, um, I think there's legitimate concern. Do you uh, think there's the possibility, though, that there's like a setback or something happened that we're not being told about? Because that was sort of like the fan theories after seeing him at the NBA I, game. I don't because I, I think that the belief all along was going to be he wasn't going to be able to throw until sometime April, May anyway. And, and you know, you know, maybe it's the point where he still has to build up some strength back in the wrist, too. So I, I wouldn't be concerned until 
and, and they don't want to put a timeline on this either because you do that. And, and, and I think they're right not to do that, to be honest with you, because then all of a sudden April 15th comes along and Joe's not ready to throw. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, let the timeline be organic. And, and when, when he's ready to go, he's ready to go. I, I think I would be alarmed if you don't see Joe Burrow throw on the first day of training camp. Then I'd be extraordinarily alarmed. Yeah, agreed on that. Uh, T. Higgins was franchise tagged for one year at $21.8 million dollars. Duke Tobin didn't shoot down the notion of trading him, did he? Last year at this time, you guys asked about it, and it was like, tell them to go get their own, talking about all the other teams. This year, it was kind of like, uh, we'll see what's best for us kind of deal, wasn't it? Yeah, and listen, I don't think it, I don't think he's going to get traded because I just don't think there's going to be a trade partner. But at the same time, I think it's wise on their part. They didn't say we're open for business, but they basically said we're open for business. I mean, if you get some ridiculous offer from a team um, and you feel like, hey, we're getting – uh, not only our first round pick, but we're getting a top 10 pick. I don't think that's going to happen, mind you. We're getting a top 10 pick and maybe their second round pick for T. I, again, that's I don't think that happens. And you feel like, hey, with that top 10 pick, we can get one of these top level wide receivers and just plug and play for a cheaper price, still get our first round guy, and we're just going to move on just fine. I just don't think that partner's out there, A, and it would have to be an offer that would knock their socks off, B. Yeah, finally, Joe Mixon. The Bengals are kind of running out on time on making a decision here. They're going to have to let him go in the next two weeks if they're going to do it to save $6.1 million against the cap. Did you get the sense that they're defending Mixon's value legitimately or just avoiding the question as best as they could as you guys are asking them here a week before they're ready to make a move? Yeah, I I think avoiding it um, because the question was asked. I can't remember how it was specifically phrased, but it was about somebody when Duke was at the podium. So Duke and Zach talked at the podium to a bigger group. And then the group of Cincinnati media got him off to the side and were able to ask him more stuff. Uh, Duke was asked at the podium though, about Joe and said, what are your plans for him moving forward? And he said, you know, Joe had a really good year for us last year. And, and he did say he, he did it. He was talking mostly about last year and he did then go out and goes, you know, I'm not going to talk about anybody on our roster and our plans for them moving forward. Well, yes, you would. If you knew he was definitively your running back, you would simply say, Joe Mixon's our starting running back moving forward. That, that's bottom line end of story. He's under contract to our team. And no. And in fact, then Zach, one of his quotes was, when I think of Joe, I always think of him fondly. It almost sounded like he was reminiscing already about, about Joe Mixon. So to me, if you had to put a percentage on it, I think that he does not get his contract option picked up, or he's not doesn't get his roster bonus come March 17th. Um, because again, if they if they pay him the three million dollar roster bonus on March 17th. You'd They're be stupid him. to pay him. Yeah. And yeah. then all of a sudden cut him later. Um, if you're going to cut him, you're going to cut him in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. It was funny because, you know, I'm listening to those comments and the one comment you just pointed out there was the one that made me reassured that, okay, they're, they are going to get rid of him here, but they, they got into all these, the weeds a little bit of talking about his role on last year's team and, and how he had a good year and he got a thousand yards and all of a sudden I'm like, wait, are they like actually trying to sell this right now as they should bring him back? Because if they did, that I'll, I'll be pretty frustrated. Well, I'll be honest. There's just that You can get a Joe Mixon for much cheaper at the end of the day. Yeah. The only other thing that they keep the option open potentially for is if they look at the landscape of free agents, because you don't have to do – the one thing is free agency technically starts on March 11th. There's that two-day period of, of legal tampering where you can start going back and forth, and then free agency signing period starts on the 13th. Mixon's roster bonus doesn't kick in until March 17th. So you got a little period in there that if you think you can go find a running back either who's better or cheaper or the combination of both, then you're making that move. If for whatever reason the market goes like that and, you know, some guys that you were targeting at a certain price go for a higher price or sign with another team and the fallback plan is, well, Joe's still on the roster 
Um, and, you know, we still need a running back. I think that's the only fallback plan that they would have in that regard. So they have a little wiggle period there um, to, to, to make a move and then decide what to do with Joe Mixon. But it's not much of a wiggle period. Again, if some of these guys go off the market or the price, it's not going to go sky high for running backs because that market is so so decimated uh, from a price standpoint that it, it's it's not going to, to do it. Um, and or in that period of time, you also renegotiate with Joe Mixon to say, yeah, we want to keep it, but we're going to keep you with your roster bonus of three mil and maybe – $2 million of base pay. That's it. Have a good day. Yep. Anything else here to hit on with the Bengal side of things, Kenny? No, we got a chance to talk to just about everybody. Um, I, I'm not up there today. I'm, I'm going to get the transcript from it. Lou Anaruma was talking to the to our media today. Talked to Dan Pitcher yesterday. Um, I thought he was really interested. I'm writing a story on it today about trying to create more big plays. He, you know, he said, looking back on this, that's the one area that we really didn't have enough explosive plays, both in the run game and the pass game, and we need to find ways – to do that. And he said, that's now my job to do that. He's now the, the offensive coordinator. Uh, we talked to a couple of new coaches as well. I really like the passing game coordinator, Justin Riscotti. He was, he was uh, just a, a, a delight to talk to. And then Brad Crackthorpe, the, uh, the quarterbacks coach who replaced Dan Pitcher, but he was the assistant quarterbacks coach. He, he had an interesting story on Joe Burrow. He, keep in mind, he was uh, an assistant uh, at, at LSU when Burrow was there. So he's kind of, he's kind of progressed with Burrow from LSU to here. So he's kind of seen all of it. And a question was asked of him early of, you know, looking back at the LSU days, what was the first time that you you really thought, you know, Joe Burrow had a chance to kind of be the guy. And he said, he said, I remember it vividly. It was a, it was a practice when he was competing for the starting quarterback job as a junior, when he first came in, because again, he wasn't like plugged in right away as, as the man. Um, he said it was a, it was a play where there was a blitzer, a free runner coming at him that Joe had to be accountable for. And we had a play called and um, he had to drift back and drift away. And he said he actually got to his third progression as he's getting blitzed and drifting away. And he said he drifted almost to where we as coaches and the rest of the team was standing. And all of a sudden he makes this throw and he goes, I just said out loud to him, Hey man, that was a heck of a heck of a play. Um, that was really an unbelievable play. And he said, he turned around and winked and and he goes, he winked and smirked and said, that was easy. And, and he goes, at that point, you're like, that, that's that's And that's kind of him, right? I mean, that's almost him in a nutshell. Yeah, and especially at that time, that was like before right, right. everyone knew he was him, but he already knew he was him, and Correct. that's what you constantly hear about him. Is he's just he's just always like that. So, yeah. all right, let's get in some ask any anything. Yep. Rank the following college basketball jobs: Indiana, Kentucky, Louisville, Dayton, Xavier, Cincinnati, and Ohio State. So seven local regional schools here: Kentucky, Louisville. Indiana, Dayton, Xavier, Cincinnati, and Ohio State. I'm putting Indiana seventh. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, who, who's won there in the last two decades on a consistent basis? It's fair. I and, mean, and it's a fan base, I think, that still does believe it's a blue blood. Well, that that's the biggest issue with Indiana. Now, the thing about Indiana is you're going to get paid insane amounts of money. But you're going to have any resource that you need. You have great facility. I mean, there it's a good job still if you think you're the real deal, but it comes with a lot of pressure and a lot of headaches. I would have it fourth. Okay. All right. So you've already ranked these then, which is fine. So I would, well, I, I, I'm just doing, I mean, just doing it right now off the top of my head, I would say I would clearly have it above Cincinnati, Xavier, and Dayton. Okay. Uh, I, I just, I, I, yeah, fair enough. I got UC six. I, I honestly just think winning in that conference is going to be extraordinarily hard moving forward. And for a program that's been a consistent NCAA tournament team from 1993 on that all of a sudden isn't. And I think it's really going to have a hard time getting back there. I hope I'm wrong. 
UC Fantasy. I do. I hope I'm dead wrong, but I think it's going to be really, really hard to do. Logically, you're dead on. Let me also throw out this, though. You're putting Dayton ahead of UC then. You would have well, to live in the city of Dayton, in theory, if you took that job. Well, I knew where you would put Dayton, so try, I get that. The one thing about Dayton is I don't know – and listen, their fan base is rabid. It's – I don't know if there's the, the same type of pressure there. And also, easy to win. No nope. low pressure. What's that? I said easy to win. I low, I don't know if it's yes. low pressure because they're still so they're so fanatical about basketball there that there yes. is some pressure. But it's not not exactly the same maybe as Indiana or Kentucky or Louisville. Correct. Um yeah, I put them fifth though just because to your point, I mean it's state. I mean, uh I, I put I put. Uh, I think Xavier Jobs a good job. Let me go back and, and rank from top to, to four. Now I've gone five, six, and seven. I still think the Kentucky job would be the best because you're going to yep. get paid oodles of money, and uh, hell, everybody has won there. I mean, even when Billy Clyde Gillespie didn't win, he still won. I mean, right. as goofy as that sounds. Yeah, the um, worst but, case scenario at Kentucky is you're losing in the NCAA tournament too frequently, not making yes. it far enough there. And I mean, it's not like you have losing seasons at UK. And if you accept that job, you have to. And, and again, I, I think Tubby Smith was right. Ten years is probably the shelf life uh, for for a coach at, at that place because a you're going to have socked away enough coin to go somewhere else and um, probably had good success. You know, I think Cal's out state is welcome to be quite frank, as we know, but he's also getting paid oodles of money. So, listen, the pressure's there. Um, the fan base has turned on him to a large degree, but at the same time, he's just looking at you, going, "Yeah, well, the check cleared on Friday, and it's a pretty damn big check, kids." And I'm just going to suck it up here and and live with it. So, I still think it is the best job, almost of all those hands down. I, I guess I'll go Louisville fourth. Um, I still think you can win there. The only thing is, you, you know, you're in that facility that that um, is not yours, and if you're not filling it. There's not enough money to be had. I, it's in a weird spot at the moment. I mean, they they botched this hire, even though in theory, I means a Louisville guy who's been a high level assistant, you'd think he could come in and scoop in and get recruits, and it's just it's been a disaster. Well, they got the hire so wrong this last time right. around that it actually makes it a good job again. I think. Well, like, yeah, y- y- it was going to be difficult replacing Rick Pitino and coming in like after that whole fiasco. There was still a cloud over the whole program, and it's like, where where's everything headed? The expectations are still way too high because they think they're going to be able to just get through another scandal like that. I mean, all of that stuff. So then Chris Mack took it over. It didn't work out. What have you? It may still have been a difficult job to take over after Chris Mack, but now that Kenny Payne has plummeted expectations and the standards so much, this is the time to take over Louisville because you have endless resources there. I mean, truly endless resources, as much as you need. And you can still, I mean, Louisville has proven it can win national championships. You can recruit top five players in the country to get there, to go there, and and you can get them. I, I think Louisville is right behind Kentucky as number two. Yeah, and it wasn't just a coach. It's been a long time. I and mean, you go back, Louisville was a powerhouse in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. And then Patino came in and did his thing. And then Chris, to, to some degree, Chris had success on the court until the, yeah, the COVID end. year. He was yeah. looking great. Yeah. Yeah, correct. So, yeah, you can, there's no doubt you can win there. I'll put Xavier at number three um, because, again, stretch it all the way back to, to Pete Gillen, for goodness sakes. When have they not? consistently won. I know this is a year that they're not going to the tournament, et cetera. There was a little blip in the Travis era that I think, no no offense, I think was more on Travis than it was on anything else. Um, it's a program that you've proven you can you can win in. I, I will say the current Big East structure does make it tougher because they are just, I, I don't see a lot of those programs going any place at the moment. 
Well, and you've got big time coaches in the conference right yeah. now at the top. Yep. And uh, I mean, UConn is a powerhouse. They are, I think look, look, UConn's a legitimate blue blood at this point, And I don't see yeah. them be knocked off that perch anytime no, soon they, in the big East. About getting a higher right. They got the higher right. They nailed it. Um, and they also nailed it getting out of the AAC and getting back into right. the Big East. That really helped them a lot, too. Hopefully, they won't screw it up and make another dumb decision based on football going forward because there's been rumors about that. But, I mean, I, I go Kentucky. Well, then Ohio State would be my number two because, again, you you got everything you can want. And you're in a league that, honestly, I, the Big Ten doesn't knock my socks off. It just doesn't. Agreed. I, I totally agree with that, especially at the top right now. I mean, Izzo looks like he's ready to get out. Listen, Matt, Matt Painter is the gold standard in that league at the moment. He's built a consistent winner. Now, it, had, it has its flameouts in March uh, without question. But, I, I mean, he's got it rolling at the moment. And he's got continually he – has, he has found the blueprint to get three- and four-year guys and three- and four-year guys to stay at his program. All right, so you said Kentucky, Ohio, Ohio State, State. Xavier, Louisville, um, Dayton, Cincinnati, and then um, – who's the other one? I got him at the bottom. Uh Indiana. Indiana, yes. Yeah. I would go Kentucky 1, Louisville 2, Ohio State 3, Indiana 4. Really? Then Xavier 5, Cincinnati 6, and Dayton 7. I could be taught... I could be talked out of from a job only standpoint, Dayton being higher for the reasons yeah. you listed. But <laughs> you have such a disdain for Dayton that they were automatically going seventh on your list. Correct. I mean, you'd have to live either in the city of Dayton or live 30 to 40 minutes away from your job, which either way kind of knocks it down the list a bit. Centerville's so. not that far away. Yeah, but I mean, you're not going uh, again. You're just not, that's a terrible spot to have to commute into Dayton and spend most of your life there every day. It's just not what you want to be doing. Uh, skinny. What is your favorite vacation spot? Also, how active are you on vacation? Hiking, golfing, beach chair? Uh, yeah, the last couple of years, vacation's been down to see my daughter in Orlando and spend a week there. We play golf a couple of times. My other daughter goes as, as well. So that my oldest daughter played in college. My youngest played in uh, in high school. So we get a, you know, a couple rounds of golf in, you know, spend some pool time. Obviously, she works at Disney, uh, Disney Parks. And so we do some stuff at the parks, but for me, Hawaii hands down doing nothing laying on the beach that that's I've been three times and it's just beautiful. It's, it's, I, I would, I could live there if the, if the cost of living wasn't so outrageous, it is just, it's just magnificent. If, if, if you ever have a chance to go folks, I would say, put it on a bucket list because, and then do the Island hop and go to, go to Honolulu, which is much more commercial, go to Maui for sure. It's tragic what happened with the wildfires, but it's absolutely beautiful. Your older daughter, the, the serious golf player, is her husband a golfer? No, he tried. He tried. We got him out a few times. It just it, it didn't go. It didn't go so well. Oh, I was just thinking that because I knew she's that she's legitimately good. Like she was a college golfer. Yeah. So I'm just thinking like that's a tough spot. If if the husband isn't a good golfer, I think you just have to skip it altogether because it's like you can't go out there and be worse than your wife. Yeah, and she was very nice about trying to help teach him and and whatnot. And it just it just yeah. and I'll give him credit. He tried. He he he's a he's a big fitness buff. He he he's a he actually. He doesn't do it anymore because he actually had a bike accident where he broke his wrist and it's kind of scared him off of it. But he was actually when he when he did that, he actually was training for a triathlon. So he's into that stuff. And that's that's all good. Oh, all right. So an athlete nonetheless. Yeah, uh, I don't know about the athlete part, but he <laughs> fitness athlete. Fitness, yeah. Cro- uh, CrossFit. Uh, what is Skinny's favorite Broadway show or musical? Oh, for the love of Mary. Have you ever seen a Broadway show or musical? I have. I've seen Cats and I've seen West Side Story. I'll go West Side Story. 
that makes it easy. It's a one of two choice there. Um, uh, my family's big theater people. My daughter was a theater major, and even my golfing oldest daughter, she was she did a bunch of theater stuff throughout. So it's a it's a big theater fan. They they've got season tickets to Aronoff, so they go to all this stuff. They do tell me that I need to go see Book of Mormon. They said I will actually enjoy that. So. That's why this question is on here. This is actually for me because I just went and saw Book of Mormon last weekend. And? I'm not a musical guy. Like, right. let me just, be, uh, and then like, it, it applies to this too. Uh, I Everyone told me, no, 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 you just need to see Book of Mormon. You'll like that one. It's hilarious. Okay. So I went, I watched it and it's like, okay. Like, it, here's my issue with anything of that nature. Broadway, plays, whatever. It feels like you're going to watch someone's school project. Like we have Netflix. They do it really well. Like it actually looks good. We don't have to watch them roll things around on the stage and what I mean, don't get me wrong, these people are talented. They're trying really hard. They're good at what they do. I just don't appreciate what they do that much. It's like and by the way, the Book of Mormon thing, everyone's like it's hilarious. It's so funny. They're making fun of religion. It's really deep and smart, intelligent all this stuff. It's just a bunch of poop jokes and fart jokes and butt jokes. I mean, it's like it's sexual. They cuss a lot, but other than that, it's really not that funny. It's like it's like you chuckle a couple times. Listen, I'm not going to call myself the greatest father in the world by any stretch of the imagination. My wife raised my daughters, and and they're a reflection of her far more than they are of me, um, which is a good thing. Trust me. But if I get points anywhere in heaven from 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 the man above for the things I did as a father, it was going to every stinking musical production and dance competition that my daughters were in. And you have no idea how painful for that for me to sit there because my, my, my youngest was actually she's pretty damn talented in that regard. And she she was on the competitive dance team at her dance studio and they were in more of the productions than everybody else. But to sit there and watch nine other acts before your kids in the first one is just excruciating to me. And that's the thing, Skinny. It's the same stuff, even if you're paying yes. $400 per ticket to sit in the orchestra at Aronoff. Like, they're yes. doing the same stuff. Like, yeah, they're good at it, but it's like, it's somebody's school project. You're just watching. I'm like sitting there and I'm thinking about it. I'm like, this just isn't for me. It's not meant for me. I'm I'm happy for everyone else to fill yes. it up. We should sell it out. I'm happy that the arts, Absolutely. I'm from a family that's big into the arts. My sister's a professional singer. My parents met in a band, like, we were big into the arts and I was in dance recitals growing up because my sister was part of that and they needed guys to help lift them. So I'm not against any of that stuff. I'm just saying it's not for me. I'm not spending any more money going to the air and off for musicals. Yeah. It's not my thing. I, I do. I, I probably will see Book of Mormon at some point. I'm telling you, I can't wait to hear your feedback from it because it's it's fine. You'll be like, it was okay, but it's everyone swears it'll like change your thinking oh, about musicals. It doesn't. That, that's, that's, that's what I've been told by my, it, by my kids. It's the same as every other musical skinny. They Thanks. sing songs that you don't really understand why they're singing instead of just to saying it. And they're rolling stuff around on the stage the whole time where you're like, okay, I guess another set change. Good deal. Uh, <laughs> all right. What road trip attractions, i.e. house of mud, giant stuffed albino, Buffalo world's largest ball of twine, etc., has skinny visited Anything stand out as either interesting or amazingly bad? This is our final question. Yeah, the, and I can't remember where I, where I remember the giant Paul Bunyan thing. Where's I? Where, it's like somewhere, uh, I guess in, in Minnesota. I that think one, Minnesota. That one stands out to me. I, I'm not a yeah. I, I I would tell you this: if there's a if it you know you see those landmark signs on the ro on the road as you're going, like you know exit one twenty seven will be. I just it's not me. I just don't do that. Because for me. When I'm driving, I want to go from point A, my starting point, to point B as fast as I can humanly get there. I'm I'm looking for these statues. It looks like there's uh 
there's multiple ones in California and Portland. Maybe that's where it was in California. Okay. Does he have the blue ox with him? Yes, babe. The blue ox is yeah. in a couple of these. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Yeah. So I'm with you though. I'm not a, I like to be in the car listening to a podcast with a giant Coke zero and maybe like some type of tobacco or vape or something going on. That's uh, stimulating me that way. And then I just cruise for as long as you can humanly cruise. I don't need to stop and see like the sites or anything like that. I'll drive past them and wave. Yeah, correct. I'm with you. All right. That's all we got skinny. Good stuff. Appreciate the questions as always. Keep them coming. We'll be back next week as we get closer and closer to the start of conference tournament season and the NCAA tournament, the reds rolling along in spring training, and we're getting very close to Bengals and free agency in a couple of weeks as well. For Rick Roaring, I'm Richard Skinner. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly full pre-edition presented by Blake, the attorney Mason.